It occurs to me that one of the most important decisions that a church will ever make is the selection of biblically qualified and spiritually mature men called elders, and likewise of choosing qualified and spiritually mature men and possibly women, depending upon one's understanding and interpretation of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 13, that are called deacons or deaconesses. As go the leaders, so goes the church. Pastor Tabidi Anabaiwe opens his excellent book, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons, the following way. He says, quote, a church without godly leaders is an endangered church. And a church that does not train its leaders is an unfaithful church. He said, God gives leaders to his churches for the maturity, unity, and soundness of each local congregation. Without godly, faithful, replicating leadership, churches suffer deeply. And you know, he is 100% correct. Pastor David Platt helpfully describes elders as servant leaders, and then he describes deacons as leading servants. I think that's a helpful distinction. To be sure, the distinction between the biblical offices, two of them, elder and deacon, is subtle, but it's significant. Elders, on the one hand, are shepherds of God's flock who exercise spiritual oversight and possess spiritual authority within God's spiritual household as they feed and lead and protect and as they rescue Christ's sheep through the ministry of prayer and the word of Christ. Elders are Jesus' assistants for tending the flock and for contending for the truth. Pastor Mark Dever, whose recent book, How to Build a Healthy Church, a Practical Guide to Deliberate Leadership, which ought to be standard issue material for every new pastor and church leader today, defines the role of elder this way. He says, an elder is simply a man of exemplary Christ-like character who is able to lead God's people by teaching them God's word in a way that profits them spiritually. That's a simple and rather clear definition. Dustin Benge adds, the under-shepherds, again, the elders of the flock of God, beautify the church through their godly lives, their faithful work, biblical leadership, and their dedicated service. In short, friends, elders are the church's spiritual leaders who serve by demonstrating godliness with their lives and by declaring the mystery of godliness with their lips. Elders are the shepherding servants of Christ's church. Now, deacons, on the other hand, are yet additional servants who lead within the context of God's family by assisting and supporting the elders of the church in meeting practical and physical needs. More than mere holy handymen, Deacons, just like elders, are deeply spiritual people whose job it is to help free up the pastors and the elders to do their jobs by looking after widows and ministering mercy to the poor and to the sick and by tending to all manner of administrative details such as church finances and dealing with building needs and a host of other growing pains in God's family. The deacons, as one author observed, are the church's shock absorbers enabling the elders to exercise spiritual oversight and responsibility for the glory of God and for the good of the fellowship of the church. 
Interestingly, in a rare New Testament glimpse into the close ties and relationships between the office of overseer and the office of deacon and the church, Paul writes in Philippians 1 verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints, that's you guys, in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, those are the elders, and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a rare glimpse at the organization of the church, even in Paul's day. Friends, today we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, particularly verses 1 to 7, and specifically at the spiritual qualifications and characteristics of those whom God, the Holy Spirit, provides and appoints to the church office of elder. Now next week we're going to circle back to verses 8 to 13 and examine together the strikingly similar spiritual qualifications and characteristics of those whom God gives to the church to minister faithfully and and humbly as deacons. As we begin, we need to bear in mind what we said last Sunday in our series opener, that 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, again, those are the three New Testament books which make up for us what we commonly call the pastoral letters or pastoral epistles, are really books all about the purpose and the purity and the organization and the order of God's spiritual household that we call the church. These books are about as close to a how-to field manual for church leadership as you'll find anywhere in the scriptures. Remember with me how Paul had left Titus on that important island country of Crete, and likewise he deposited Timothy in the prominent city of ancient Ephesus in order that they might combat false teachers, install or appoint qualified leaders, and instruct these churches in sound doctrine. You see, it's highly likely that both of these ancient communities were suffering greatly from an abject failure of leadership in the church. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and following, we read these words. Paul writes to Timothy, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made previously about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, notice some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander then were very likely two Ephesian elders who had somehow disqualified themselves from church Ministry. That's what Paul means when he says they had made shipwreck of their faith. And they were now causing serious disturbances within the household of the church. And so part of Timothy's job simply, and likewise Titus's job over in Crete, was to help the church identify and then install newly appointed leaders who met the spiritual and biblical qualifications necessary for church leadership in God's house as elders and as deacons. Their task was to find faithful shepherds and faithful servants to help build up the church of Jesus once again in their day. And so that's a bit of the background preparing us for the qualifications that we read today. So here's the next big question for us this morning. What then qualifies a man for the noble work 
of shepherding. In other words, what are the exact prerequisites necessary for effectively serving as an overseer or pastor or elder? Three terms that all really refer to the same man and same office in the church. What are the basic parts or components that go into building a man of God and an elder of the church? That's what we want to talk about together this morning. Again, notice that 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, you ought to make note that these two, are, these two texts really go together. They specifically provide a sort of description of the kind of man we ought to be looking for in a church elder. There are other places, mind you, such as 1 Peter chapter 5, you'll hear that text at the end of today's service, verses 1 to 4, and Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 35, among others, that detail the elder's task. But specifically, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, these passages describe the elder's character. The elder's character. I think it was D.A. Carson, a contemporary scholar and more than able expositor today, who noted that the remarkable thing about qualifications associated with the office of elder in the pastoral letters is how utterly unremarkable they truly are. In other words, the preconditions for the selection and appointment of the task of eldership are not superhuman conditions. I am proof positive of that point. Nothing extra, there is nothing extraordinary about men who serve as elders. Instead, virtually every quality, mind you, and every characteristic mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1, aside from the specific qualification of being able to teach, ought to be true, get this, of every single believer. We shouldn't think of finding an elder or finding elder material in the church as elusive as finding that rainbow-colored unicorn out in the wild. Instead, the raw ingredients of faithful elders and deacons ought to be present in every single pew in the church. Well, church elders are simply mature men who are qualified for their office or task because they have exhibited the kind of Christ-like character in the heart, in the home, in the church, and in the community that others would be wise to imitate. That is, elders are spiritually mature men who serve as humble and holy examples of Christ-likeness among the flock of God. The qualifications outlined here by Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 do not put elders in a class by themselves. Rather, they simply point out from among the class, that is the congregation or the church, those who particularly give evidence of faithfulness and devotion to Jesus and to the church and have a sense of readiness or preparedness for them to serve excellently as leaders in the day. John Calvin said of church leadership in general that it is no light matter to represent God's Son in such a great task as erecting and extending God's kingdom and caring for the salvation of souls whom the Lord Himself has deigned to purchase with His own blood and ruling the church which is God's inheritance. This is no light 
responsibility. The writer of Hebrews puts it a different way. Hebrews 13, verse 17, admonishing the believers, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your very souls, as those who will have to give an account. But let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I have learned anything in the last seven years as your pastor. It is the church leadership is not for the faint of heart. It comes with a great responsibility, but it promises a great reward for those who lead faithfully. Listen, being an elder in the church is not about rising to an office. It is about lowering oneself to a place of service. Spiritual leadership in God's family is hard, holy, grueling, spiritually exhausting work. No, I don't work just one day a week either. This isn't about grasping for power, seeking prestige, or angling for a position. Instead, it's about being entrusted with a stewardship of souls in the ministry of prayer and the discharge of the word. The choice or selection of elders in a local church ought not to be about personality or popularity or posterity or pedigree or even politics, though it often is. It's not about who you know. It's not about how much you give or about how charismatic people think you are. It's about none of those things. As we'll see here today, biblical eldership is about character over competence. It is about Christ's likeness and not personal charm or charisma. The key words in the selection of a church's elders should be faithfulness and godliness and service and responsibility and stewardship, not power and articulation and recognition and being the boss. It's not about those things. Elders are to be humble men who look like Christ and smell like sheep. It's not a position that one earns, but a stewardship one receives. Therefore, friends, the biblical qualifications for the task of eldership in the local church demand that we identify and select and then submit to spiritually mature men who possess the heart character, firstly, the track record in the home, the credibility then in the church, and the positive reputation in their community that enables them to effectively love, lead, feed, and protect and direct the affairs of the church in a manner that accords with godliness based on the Bible. We are looking for, as Mark Dever said, a few good men. God's men. Now briefly, I want to say four additional things before I come to the main portion of the message. And these are from my heart to you. Number one, I think I need to confess that I don't think I've done a very good job of identifying and equipping and training and challenging men here at Trinity to service as elders. I need to do better. It is ultimately my responsibility to help instill and inspire and instruct and equip men 
to step up to leadership as elders. It's not about quantity. It's about quality in leadership. In the last year, we've launched what's called the church ministry training program. I'm very pleased about that. I meet with numerous men on a one-on-one and group basis, but I still need to do better. And frankly, our elders as a group, we need to do better at raising up, identifying, and installing godly leaders in the church. Secondly, I would say it is a humbling honor to serve the church as a pastor and an elder. It is an awesome honor. But we need to acknowledge that apart from God's grace and the Holy Spirit's ministry in one's life, no one would be qualified to serve as an elder. Nobody should break their arm to pat their back because they find themselves in the position of an elder or deacon. Thirdly, I would say, having said all of the above, candidly, it is deeply challenging and mighty frustrating these days to find qualified men who are willing to step up and lay their lives down to serve the church. Don't know how many conversations I have had. And at some point in the conversation, things either in that time just simply kind of break down or they say, I just simply can't do it. And I have to be honest with you. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. Eldership is not for everybody. But since God is sovereign over his church, I know it's for some of you. Because God will never leave his family without fathers. But fourthly and finally, before we turn to the text again, I simply have to say, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself this question. Does this passage describe me? Does 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus 1, does it describe you? I want you to listen to the rest of this sermon asking the question again and again, is he talking about me? Is that describing my life? Because I believe for some of you, we are. I want to use the balance of our time together this morning to walk through the text of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 specifically, and share with you six summary statements that I believe come right out of the passage that will help you discern if eldership is for you, and will help us discern as elders if eldership is for you, and will help the congregation discern if someday in the future your name is found on the ballot for elder in the church. Now, just as a note, I would say what follows is presented to you in a logical order of sorts, but not necessarily in the biblical order that we find them. All of these qualifications and characteristics for eldership must be true of you in order for you to qualify for eldership. You must get a six out of six, in a sense, in order for you to qualify as an elder. And I would simply say there is more to the story. I don't mean to imply that we know better than God does, adding expectations or qualifications on top of the Bible, but I think there's a right conversation about a doctrinal fit in a local church. And so there's other things that ought to be a part of such an evaluation as this. 
I really searched for a Jeff Foxworthy joke. Some of you know who Jeff Foxworthy is. Because the six points I want to present for you are under the title, So You Might Be Qualified to Be an Elder If, and maybe you know what I'm saying then. You might be qualified to be an elder if, number one, you are a growing Christian. You might be qualified to be an elder if you are a growing Christian. Now, some of you are saying to yourself, man, we signed up for this? It might seem absurdly obvious, but I think it should be clearly stated. And actually, I think it's rather helpful to state this point so plainly as to normalize the pool of candidates for the position of elder are simply growing Christians. Not superhuman saints, but growing Christians. Elders, in one legitimate sense, are simply regenerate. That word means to be born again or saved. Members in good standing of God's household. Elders, simply put, are spiritually growing believers. I take this qualification from 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6, where Paul says, He must not be a recent convert. Literally, the phrase means newly planted. He must not be newly planted, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, there are all sorts of ways that people try to break down and parse out Paul's list of of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. People drop these qualifications into categories such as private qualifications and public qualifications, or positive statements and negative statements, on the other hand. Or they organize these into categories such as moral and spiritual qualifications and domestic qualifications and relational considerations for prospective elders. But I prefer simply to see that Paul takes a man's life in his hand and he asks the important questions such as this. Does a man's heart, that is his inner character, look like Jesus? Does a man's home life, as well as his church involvement and his community relationships, exemplify godliness and effectively point others to Christ? I think that's the sum total of what Paul is getting at here. Heart, home, church, community, these four quadrants of qualifications presented for our evaluation. We start with a baseline characteristic of every man who should be an elder. Am I or is the candidate simply a growing Christian? Is he saved and does he look like it? Does he act like it generally in his life? Now notice that Paul says to Timothy that he must not be a recent convert. Again, literally newly planted. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So we ask ourselves the question, why must an individual not be a new believer in a a sense? And the answer is given here. It's because of the potential danger and temptation of pride, of pride. Paul says that new believers are disqualified. Maybe we would better state that they are not yet eligible. Perhaps down the road they will be, but they're not morally disqualified. They're just not not ready for such a position. I can hear you ask, so PD, how 
long do you have to wait to be an elder? How many years does somebody have to be a Christian before they are eligible for such an office? How old do you have to be? How old is enough, Paul? Well, listen, to be honest with you, I think those are the entirely wrong questions. Instead, I think we ought to be asking the question, does a life, my life or his, reflect spiritual maturity? Do they look like Jesus? Eldership is not a matter purely of chronological mileage, but rather of spiritual maturity. It's not how old you are on the clock, it's how grown up you are in Christ that ultimately matters for eldership. History has borne out men like Charles Spurgeon and Jonathan Edwards and a host of others that were qualified and effectively used by God as elders in their late teens and early 20s. Now, sadly, not many of us are elders or Spurgeons, but the point you, hopefully, you, you get, it's not merely a matter of age. Somebody who's in their 50s or 60s is not more inherently qualified than somebody in their 20s or 30s. Is the candidate a spiritual newbie? If so, then it's very likely prudent to wait and to watch his life. If the person, no, is growing, a growing Christian, if he is committed to the Lord and holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught in the, in the Bible, then it is at least possible that they are qualified to be an elder in the church. So that's the first qualification. An elder is simply one who is a growing believer in Jesus. Number two, you might be a qualified to be an elder if you live with a pure and righteous yearning or desire for the work of shepherding God's family. Now it's interesting that there are in fact three trustworthy sayings in 1 Timothy. Three of them. Two of them have to do with the salvation of the church, and one of them has to do with the service in the church. First, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul famously says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What a statement. The second trustworthy statement is found in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have hope, have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Two statements on salvation already. The third is found in our passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Evidently, this had become a saying in the Ephesian church. Accordingly, elders, we should note then, are saved and spiritually growing Christians who aspire, that is, they desire in a holy way, this noble task. Here's the thing. If you don't aspire, literally the word means to stretch out after, or to be eager for, or even to reach for, as in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, if you don't aspire for the work of an elder, you probably aren't cut out for it or qualified for it. 
It's actually one of the most helpful indicators in my engagement with, with some of you in terms of are you really biblically qualified to be an elder. Your life might line up, but your heart isn't in the work. And that's okay. It's not for everybody. Trust me. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, you'll recall with me how the apostle Peter writes to his fellow elders, mind you, saying, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, that is, not being forced into it, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. It's a really, really bad idea to try to guilt or force anyone into eldership. You're not doing them nor the church any favor. They must have a heart for the work. Eldership, though, starts with a sanctified desire to shepherd or care for God's people. We read in the book of Acts, Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Notice, to care for the church of God. Now, it's equally important here to point out that the English word office is not in our passage. You might think that it is. But it ain't. The verse literally reads, if anyone aspires to overseership, he desires a good work. I think this exposes some of our problem. Lots and lots of people are ambitious for an office, eager for power, desirous of authority over others. That comes in spades in the world. But Paul tells Timothy to be on the lookout for those who aspire not to the office, but to the work, to the work, to the task of caring for God's sheep. Don't watch out for those who simply want a title or a position. Rather, be on the lookout, Timothy, for those men who desire to care for God's family. And let me tell you, once again, eldership is hard holy and humbling work, but it really is a noble task. There is great blessing in the work of being an elder. So friend, let me ask you, do you ever find yourself daydreaming about serving God's sheep? You might be crazy, or you might be called to be an elder. Do you often desire to be used of God to care and protect and correct and equip other Christians for God's glory and not simply to make a name for your own glory? You might be qualified to be an elder. Do you want to make a difference in the lives of other Christians and are you willing to pay the high price that comes with such a high calling? Just look at my beard, people. It's a lot grayer than it was seven years ago. I've named some of these hairs after some of you. (laughs) But you might be an elder. Charles Spurgeon said, What is the use of a lazy minister? He is no good either to the world, to the church, or to himself. 
He is a dishonor to the noblest profession that can be bestowed upon the sons of men. If I have one fear in my life, it's the fear of being a lazy pastor. You might be qualified to be an elder if you're a growing Christian and you have a heart to serve God's sheep. Now thirdly, you might be qualified to be an elder if your life consistently consistently takes on the flavor and the character of Christ-likeness. I want you to notice that 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 actually looms over Paul's list of spiritual qualifications, sort of like an introduction or a header, the kind of faithful character and man that must be found to be qualified to be an overseer in the church. Paul says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Everything else, mind you, everything else hangs on the phrase above reproach. It's not so much another characteristic as a sum of all the characteristics. He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Literally, you've heard this before, a one-woman man. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. That word means to have an orderly life, hospitable. Now here, I think it's helpful to compare the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 with Titus chapter 1. Again, in verse 6, note what Paul writes to Titus. If anyone aspires, if anyone is above reproach, excuse me, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, glance down to verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Taken together, we see that Paul's lists of qualifications uh, of the sort of life that, that really is not sinless. There is no sinless saint. Not claiming to be perfect in any way, but nevertheless still characterized generally by godliness. That such a life is required for the office of elder. To be above reproach simply means that no accusation of flagrant, unrepentant sin can stick on you. You are a repenter. The overall character and condition, the spiritual vibe, you might say, of a particular person is reckoned to be righteous on account of regular repentance of sin and reliance daily upon the Lord Jesus Christ. No elder at this church claims to be perfect. Far from it. An elder's life, though, ought to regularly remind others of somebody very special. That's Jesus Christ. When you encounter an elder, you want to say, man, who do they remind me of? And the answer ought to be Jesus. They remind you and point you to Jesus. Paul seems to prioritize the inner life that is the heart of a man who aspires to the office of elder in the church as one that is faithful to the woman, if married, that he is married to. The kind of life which is temperate or clear-headed, what we hear, see in the word sober-minded, 
A life that is ruled by reason and prudence, self-controlled. That is composed and orderly. That's what we find in the word respectable. A life that is open to expressing God's love frequently for the stranger. That's what the word hospitable is getting at. Let me just reiterate that there is nothing contained in this list that is especially impressive or unique to the office of elder. Elder, every believer, ought to behave or be described just like this in God's family. This part of the message applies to everybody. Paul's point is that elders must be characterized by these godly qualities. But every believer ought to be characterized by them. We could ask the question, does a man display genuine heart and love for Jesus? Is he a person of deep integrity? Does he love his wife and his family well? Is he a kind and generous man with his time and resources to others in the church and in his community? Is he made up of the, of, of the kind of qualities that our church would be proud of and willing to follow? Or would we be embarrassed if others found out that such a man was entrusted with leadership in our church? Those are the sorts of questions that one ought to consider when evaluating a man for eldership. Mark Dever again said that elders must be gentle giants spiritually. We may cast a long shadow that we don't bring a heavy foot. They must be growing Christians with a growing desire to serve God's family, and they must exhibit a goodly or godly character reminiscent of the character of Jesus himself. Now, in addition to these positive qualities found in verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3, notice that Paul adds several negative statements in verse 3. He must not be a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. And not a lover of money. The character of a man who is qualified for eldership is full of Christ-like qualities. And is empty of bruising, bullish, self-absorbed qualities found in verse 3. Pity the church. Pity the church that is burdened with a man in leadership who is abusive and pugnacious and quick-tempered and intemperate and obsessed with financial gain. The fastest way to ruin a church is to put a man with such a character in charge. Can such a person be trusted with church leadership and effectively model the life of Christ? By no means. So be on the watch for such people. Elders must simply be growing Christians with a growing desire for the work and a growing likeness to Christ. But fourth, you might be qualified to be an elder if you have displayed a proven track record of faithfulness in your home and in the community. Now I notice that in addition to the several, I count as many as ten heart qualifications that Paul gives here, he adds at least a few qualifications about a man's home and community relations in the text. Does a man possess credibility as a husband, a father, and as a community member? I take this from 1 Timothy 3, 4 and verse 5 and Titus 1, verse 6. Paul says he must manage his own household well, 
with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Titus 1.6 adds, The elder must be the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, that is, faithful, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Paul simply asked the question that we ought to consider, is a man's home life exemplary? Again, not perfect. Nobody is perfect. We realize this. The assessment and evaluation of any and all elder candidates or of God's potential leading in your own life as a leader calls for deep humility and godly discernment. Don't shrug off the list of qualifications and don't be buried by them. Nobody's perfect. However, we must never lower the bar of leadership simply to fill open vacancies, open positions. That, friends, is a recipe for certain disaster that we've seen time and again. Instead, a potentially qualified man is one who, in my view, based upon this passage, is lovingly committed to the wife that he's married to. He is a person who has displayed a certain measure of competence and skill in managing or leading, first and foremost, his own household well. And while I do not take these verses to mean that a man is personally or inherently disqualified if he has grown children who do not walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, I do think that it means that a man's household, his marriage, and his family is a test case for careful and critical evaluation. Was and is his life an impediment to his wife and children in seeing the gospel and trusting Christ? Or does his children, for example, live in rebellion against God despite his prayer, despite his pleas, despite his love for Jesus Christ? That's the distinction that we ought to make. The sense that we get here is that There should be a biblically qualified elder is growing and spiritually mature Christian with a growing desire of loving God's church as evidenced by a life that increasingly looks more and more like Jesus and based upon some experience, not sure how much, just some experience of having, if possible, proven himself capable and committed to caring for his own household and therefore able to care for God's. Is that you? friend? Is your relationship with your wife characterized by mutual care and godly submission with love and tenderness and regular forgiveness? Do you have the sort of marriage that other people want to imitate? Have you done the hard and holy work of raising kids in the fear and admonition of Jesus Christ the King? Are your children, if still living at home, I think especially Are they in submission to your authority? Do they respect you? And do they honor you? For if not, why is there any reason to believe that your leadership in the church will be any different? Do you have a proven history and track record of diligence domestically and faithfulness at home, which has prepared you in some way for ministry in the church? That's what Paul's getting at. Let me just insert here briefly, that I do not believe that elders must be married. That seems to preclude Jesus and Paul, among others. 
nor do I believe that they have to have children. Paul says, I wish that some of you were as I am, meaning unmarried and fully devoted in Christ. I most certainly do not believe the Bible requires marriage and children. However, I do think it is exceedingly important for a man and a local church to consider not only the condition of a man's inner life, but also the quality of his outer life, his home, and his community reputation before trusting him with the keys to the church. Again, Paul adds in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Simply put, for a man to be qualified in the church, he must have a good reputation outside of it. Do people know, friend, that you are a Christian at work? And if they do, what kind of reputation does Jesus have because of it? What kind of testimony does the elder candidate have? And does his reputation and character commend or call into question his ability to lead faithfully in the house of God? For simply put, an elder... To be qualified, he must be a growing Christian with a growing desire and a growing life that is well-proven in a sense, both in home and around town. Now, number five, you might be qualified to be an elder. Now, hold on, ladies, if you are a man. I've saved these final two qualifications for last because, as I said earlier, there is a sense of logical progression or flow that I've wanted you to consider carefully this morning. And I didn't want half of you to get up and walk out if I put this as point number one earlier. No, I don't think we're that kind of church. Elders, on the other hand, are simply growing Christians with a humble and pure desire to care for God's family. So far, so good. Frankly, that could apply to every single life and person in this room. Elders ought to next exhibit Christ's likeness both inside and out, that is in their hearts and in their home and in their communities in order to be biblically qualified. But the final two qualifications really begin to thin out the field of possible candidates for elder. And that's a good thing. First, to be biblically qualified, you must be a man. You must be a man. Listen carefully. The office of elder or overseer or pastor is reserved biblically for spiritually qualified males in membership. But notice what I just said. The office of elder or pastor is reserved for qualified males. Not just any man but a biblically qualified man. And that's a big distinction. In the context of 1 Timothy, Paul was instructing this young pastor, Timothy, on how to straighten out and put into place the proper behaviors of men and a lot of women back in the city of Ephesus. And one such improper behavior, evidently, and we'll get to this in weeks to come, was the usurping of spiritual authority by teaching in the church by certain women. Sort of an ancient women's lib movement, you might say. Again, we'll have more to say on that hot topic in the weeks ahead. I would welcome your prayers as I prepare. 
But suffice it to say here and now that the criteria and the qualifications for service in the church as an elder, according to 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, and Titus 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, not because Dan says it, but because God says it, is that it assumes male leadership in the church. And that's nothing for us to be embarrassed about, because this is God's house, and He gets to set the rules. Jeremy Ryan, who wrote a very helpful little book entitled simply Elders, comments that it should be obvious by now, but let me say it plainly, God has called men and only men to be church elders. In fact, Paul said twice that an elder must be a one-woman man, that he must be faithful if married to his wife. Sorry, that he must be faithful if married to his wife. Paul, I didn't write the book, I just read these things. (laughs) Paul had said immediately before this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12, that I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Consequently, given that the primary function of the elders' task was teaching, this precludes women from serving as elders. And last, Paul linked leadership in the church with leadership in the home, Just as God has called men to lead in the marriage and parenting, so too he calls men to lead in the church as God's family. Close quote. Now, sisters, please listen. You are loved deeply. I realize that what has just been said might be hurtful to some. You are loved deeply. You matter immensely to Christ and to His church. Together we, both male and female, bear the image of God and share His glory as new covenant members of the body of Christ spiritually. And ladies, sisters, you are both a gift from God and you are gifted by God for use in His body. You matter immensely. Some of you have even been gifted especially To teach, and that is a beautiful and a sobering gift that God gives to His children. But there is one important, divinely instituted limitation regarding your participation in God's house. One, you are not permitted to be a pastor, an elder, or an overseer. Again, all the same office in his church. Just one. Makes me sort of think of Eve. And the one prohibition. And that one test. Do I really know that God loves me? And has my best interest at heart? And am I willing to keep my hand and my lips from doing what God says don't do? There's just one prohibition. It might be a significant one for you, but there's just one. It calls you to submit to his wisdom and his way. The work of pastoral shepherding as an elder or an overseer, don't misunderstand me. There are many caring for and sharing happening life to life, and that is good. Please continue to do it. But spiritual shepherding as elders and overseers is a task and responsibility reserved exclusively for qualified male members of God's church. 
Ladies, you are loved. Now, men, listen up. Don't think for a minute that your maleness makes you any more important or inherently qualified for eldership than our precious sisters. God doesn't favor dudes over ladies. I'm serious. Because there's a lot of us who simply think we are better than because we are made man. Wrong answer. You must be a man in order to be an elder in God's church. But you must be more than a man. You must be Christ's man. A godly man. A humble man. You must be a Christ-like man with a Christ-like desire to, for the work of caring for God's church. And it is a crushing calling some days. But it is a good calling. There is no place for machoism and for beating our chests as men in this church. We ought to stoop the lowest and the fastest to serve and not demand to be served. Point number six as I close. And I apologize for the length of this sermon. You might be qualified to be an elder if you are able to teach. The final qualification not only thins the crowd, but I also think more importantly it captures the essence of biblical eldership. Elders are spiritually mature men who are growing in Christ's likeness and a Christ-like concern for the welfare of God's house, but specifically are capable of skillfully and effectively teaching God's Word. Elders must be able to teach. Paul said it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Paul said it in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, where he adds, An elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Simply put, for a man to be qualified biblically as an elder, he must possess both a knowledge of the word of God and the skill requisite to teach the word of God to others. Why? Because any authority invested in the role or office of elder is declarative authority. It is, rests on the word of God, not in the counsel of man. The only authority I have, or Pastor Jerry or your elders have, over you is counsel or authority based on the book. Based on the book. It's not my opinion about medication. It's not my opinion about schooling. It's not my opinion about any of those things. But it's biblically informed truth. This might look one way for one elder and a different way for another. Because the word here is teach and not preach. There is no biblical requirement for a Bible college degree or seminary degree. One's ability to teach could take the form of an effective Sunday school teacher or a small group leader, a one-on-one discipler, or being able to speak before hundreds in the church. The discharge of this qualification is diverse. But the requirement of this, converse, of this qualification is a necessity. A man must be able to teach. 
Regardless of the context, an elder must know the content of the gospel and be able to uh, clearly, not always eloquently, obviously, be able to uh, communicate the gospel and defend the gospel against those who don't believe it. So have I been describing you, brother? Has the preaching of God's word today poured a bucket of cold water on your carnal ambitions for grabbing power in God's church? Or has it fanned even a flickering flame of passion for pursuing a ministry that lovingly leads and cares for God's flock and feeds God's family? Are you a spiritually growing Christian man who consistently exhibits the character of godliness and Christ-likeness, bearing a proven track record of humble faithfulness in your home and respectability and credibility in the church and community? And to the best of your humble ability, have you been assessed or personally affirmed that you are able to teach the Word of God to others effectively? Well, if so, you just might be qualified to be an elder. What next? Pray. Let's talk. Keep preparing. And step up. God needs fathers in his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sanctify your people by your truth. And your word is truth. We honor and exalt you, King Jesus, as the gracious and wise head of your church and ask that you would continue to shape and conform every aspect of our community, every aspect of our congregation to that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.